Hi there, and welcome to Mentaltrainer Podcasten. For non-Norwegian listeners, the Mind Coaching Podcast that you can find on iTunes. My name is Frank Nielsen. I'm the founder of non-profit nomorefear.no. I had a life-changing event back in 2011 when I experienced panic attacks for over four months. And since that time, I've been working as a mind coach for professional athletes, CEOs, and entrepreneurs. And I'm devoting my life to bring awareness and solutions about anxiety. Since I started this podcast this summer, I've talked to Norwegian pole explorers, famous Norwegian artists, world champions in rock climbing, 14 times Guinness record holder in stonebreaking, and famous Norwegian authors. To share their unique stories, their mental strategies, and inspiration you can use in your life. In the first international episode a while back, I talked to James Bruman. He ran across Australia in 82 days by himself. He has also cycled alone from Alaska to Argentina. He has space jumped and been to Everest and much more. You can check that episode on the Mind Coaching podcast on iTunes. In the second international episode, I talked to Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He previously served as a professor at Harvard University. Dr. Peterson has become a YouTube phenomenon. His lectures has been seen by millions of people all over the world. And now, finally, to today's guest. In the international episode, I talked to Mike Hamill who has over 100 major high-altitude climbing expeditions worldwide. He's been to Mount Everest 10 times. He has climbed all the seven summits, the tallest mountains on each continent at least five times, some as many as 23. <coughs> he has skied to the South Pole. He has cycled and supported across the United States. He has also started his own non-profit called Tiger of the Snows. Check out the show notes for the links. If you want to see more of, more of his accomplishments, you can check his bio. In today's episode, Mike shares his strategy for overcoming fear. After a tragic event on Mount Everest, where over when over 20 people died, how important it is to take one step at a time. What are the common traits of people reaching the top of Mount Everest? Breathing techniques he uses when he competes in the ultramarathon on high altitudes and lots more. Then enjoy this episode. Welcome to the show, Mike. Great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks, Mike. We have been planning this conversation for yeah, a month. And we were going to have this conversation in uh, the end of the, year, of the year, but I got the flu. So now we're here. Good to finally connect with you. We've done 10 expeditions to Everest now. 10? Uh, six months. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Pretty Pretty much every year for the last 10 years. <laughs> Does that mean that you have been to the top every time? Uh, I haven't been to the top every time. Um, as I'm sure you know, uh, there were the two years, 2014 and 2015. 2014 was the year we had the avalanche that in the, in the Kumbu icefall that killed 16 Sherpa. So we obviously canceled the expedition uh, that year, yeah. uh, didn't go to the top. And then, uh, the following year we had the earthquake and resulting avalanche that killed 20 people at every, ever space camp. So, um, obviously we canceled the expedition that year and, uh, didn't summit. So those two years I didn't summit my first time I was over there. I was climbing with some clients, um, who ended up turning around on, on summit day. Uh, so I didn't go to the top that year as well. So 
10 expeditions, six summits. I just have to ask you, Mike, the reason I'm talking to you now is that back in uh, the summer of 2011, I experienced panic attacks. And that uh, led me into uh, becoming a mental trainer and having this podcast. What led you into starting to climb Everest and all the mountains you have done? What was the turning point in your life that led you to do what you're doing? Um, to be honest, I don't know if there was a necessarily a turning point. I think it was kind of a natural progression for me. Uh, climbing uh, as a job was something I fell into. I, I was a climber growing up in New England in the United States, uh, more steep rock and ice. And uh, just um, sort of as a summer job, I started guiding on Mount Rainier in Washington State. And I thought it would just be a summer position for a few months. And then I'd move on and go back to school or get a, get a real job. And um, one thing led to another. I started getting opportunities to guide elsewhere around the world. And I I really became addicted to the to the lifestyle and the travel and all the amazing people um, I was meeting and, and learning from, um, you know, all these exotic cultures around the world. So I, I became hooked and, you know, the more experience I got, the more I realized that I could kind of turn it into a career. Um, so I guess it wasn't one thing that led me into mountain climbing. And, you know, I grew up doing endurance sports. I was a big Nordic ski racer as I'm sure a lot of your audience members <laughs> I was used to pushing myself and uh, I enjoyed pushing myself physically and mentally. So it's kind of a natural progression to take it on to bigger and bigger, better goals like Mount Everest. I know nothing about climbing, I'm, to be honest. I have some guests now that have tried to climb this, like James Bruman, that was the first international guest. He tried Everest in 2014. What's the special thing about Mount Everest? I think sort of from the golden age of, of climbing and polar export, exploration, um, as I'm sure you know, being Norwegian, exploration in the polar regions was something that became part of kind of the Norwegian character. Mm. And I think, um, you know, there's this mystique, this exoticism with climbing Mount Everest, and it just became sort of this metaphor for one of the biggest goals you can accomplish. And I think, I think it's still that today you know i think a lot of really goal oriented successful people want to challenge themselves against the biggest goal goal in the world and mm. one of those biggest goals something tangible is mount everest and so i think that's why we see so many people coming back year after year and it's getting a bit more accessible so we can do it more safely and um you know, uh, just with more infrastructure. So uh, I think it's just an attainable goal that, it's, uh, you know, goal-driven people can can reach for. But for you that has been to Mount Everest almost ten, uh, on the top almost 10 times, do you feel this accomplishment every time you're there? Or Absolutely, absolutely. It's, for me, uh, you know, it's, it's, I say it's almost like an addiction, this, this adrenaline rush I get from putting two and a half months into attaining one goal. You know, you experience that on some of these smaller peaks like Rainier and uh, Mont Blanc and uh, Kilimanjaro. But the, the intensity of being so focused on one goal for two and a half months, uh, these expeditions are never the same. And when you attain that goal, it's such, such an incredible feeling. You, 
you you end up leaving the mountain feeling like you've you've conquered the world and it's um you know i i i don't use the term addiction lightly you know it, it does sort of draw you in and and uh, you get used to having that feeling of success and accomplishment and i think that's what keeps drawing me back can can I remember one episode that you really felt this uh, feeling accomplishment you felt this like i said addiction you really felt like, uh, this powerful feeling that's that you obviously get time after time but can you remember one episode yeah you know i'd i'd say probably the most powerful moment for me in the mountains was this past spring uh summiting mount everest uh after the two previous years you know the avalanche in 2014 uh james was on that expedition with me and then um the avalanche that killed 20 people in 2015 on mount everest you know i it it was such such a powerful experience to go through and it and it changed me fundamentally to to be able to overcome those fears go back to everest and stand on top one more time and have it be a positive experience after what I had seen the two previous years. For me, that was such a, such a powerful moment. And, you know, Everest and the Himalayas have been such a big part of my life. 10 expeditions to Everest. That's, that's several years of, of my life. And, you know, 23, 8,000 meter expeditions total. So I spent four or five years total in the Himalayas to be able to leave there in some way, finding closure after the terrible events of 2014 and 2015 was such a powerful moment for me. I think, I think that's when I most felt that sense of accomplishment, kind of overcoming my personal feel fears, leading a client safely to the summit and back down and kind of leaving Everest behind with that positive experience. Can I ask you what, how mentally this and what strategy did you use to overcome this fear from the from the year before mac that's a great question you know it, it was certainly harder for me this year than it had been in the past because i had i had you know seen those devastating terrible things uh so i i had to sort of dig deeper and you know i don't know if there was necessarily one one technique that allowed me to overcome those fears but no, I was thinking about that earlier. I think I think one thing that has challenged me in the mountains to accomplish uh, these big goals like climbing Everest is simply the fact that, you know, the people that came before us, the, the first teams on Everest, um, climbing the mountain under such hard conditions with such poor gear, not knowing the route on the, on the mountain, um, you know, in 21 and, and 24, the, the British teams, often I draw inspiration from those teams. And I think, man, if, if they can do it in those terrible conditions, you know, Amundsen back in the day reaching the South pole and, and the Brits going down there, I figure if they can do it, then, you know, I can overcome my fears and attain, attain my goals because it's so much easier nowadays than it was back then. Mm. It's curious because as people, we often freeze or we, or we run or a fight if it's if it's something we are afraid of, and I guess that uh, being a, a leader because you're a mountain leader, uh, so for you as a leader going afraid up Mount Everest, that isn't a, a good strategy. In some way, you have to keep yourself relaxed and you have to keep yourself focused, so you can't let the fear take control over you. So I'm so I'm, I'm curious, how did you 
take control over the fear because I presume that you have these thoughts from the year before. How did you overcome those fears and thoughts? Yeah, it's it's always in my mind, and you know, I think um, I think a lot of times I draw inspiration uh, from the fact that I'm leading clients in these in these potentially dangerous situations. I know that I need to be solid and calm and um, detail oriented and on top of of um, on top of my game mm. to lead them safely up there. So a lot of times I feel like I'm, I'm able to, I don't know, overcome more knowing that I need to set an example for them Mm -hmm. and be a strong, solid, positive influence for them to achieve their own. So I don't know if that makes sense, but, um, it certainly helped me knowing that I needed to lead for someone else. So if I stand and understand it correctly, that means that you take, you, you take a role and in that role you have, uh, you are the you are the person of authority, and you're calm, and you have this overview of everything. So when you, if I understand you correctly, when you're scared or you have these thoughts of, of fear, you take this role and you adapt the, the abilities of the role. So in so in some way, you're you're using a role of being calm to overcome the fears. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that to to a certain extent. Yeah, um, you know, seeing seeing what I've seen on Everest, it's certainly always in my mind. Uh, you know, one thing I, I talked to uh, a client about on, on Everest this spring is the fact that when I climb Everest, you know, I've seen I've seen people that have been killed here or injured here or hit by an avalanche there. So when I'm when I'm climbing the peak, you know, I understand the dangers of the different situations. And I, uh, I you know, obviously think about those situations from the past. And I think it it forces me to be safer and um, you know, always be aware of my surroundings and use that to my benefit. But yeah, I think, I think definitely, uh, definitely filling that role, uh, needing to be solid for my clients helps me to overcome those fears. Mm. To be honest, I do not like heights. And I think you are the, the, the third or fourth guests I have now that has, that's either going, going to Mount Everest or has been to Mount Everest. (laughs) So, (laughs) So in some way, I attract people that been to Mount Everest, <laughs> and I'm and I still I'm still very curious because you say that I am I know my environment. I've been there before. I experienced people breaking their legs or taking about avalanches. And from my experiences, if I if when I experience fear, I want to run as hell, get away from there. The reason I'm asking you is because I know that a lot of people handle fear this way. From what I can understand when talking to you, Mike, is that. You're taking in this role, and when you're taking this role, you're, you're calming yourself, and at the same time, and this is this is cool. And in the same way that you're you're cooling yourself, you are also get, getting the overview without stressing yourself. Does that mean that you are uh, aware of your breath and and keeping yourself calm? Yeah, I'd say I'd say to a certain extent, you know, it's very conscious. Um, you know, it's a very conscious process. I think leading an expedition like this on Everest. And, um, you know, it's, you know, like you say, you're, you're afraid of heights. I'm afraid of heights as well. I think it's, I think it's uh, good. What? To, to, <laughs> 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 because you're more aware, you know, you're more safety conscious. You're more sort of aware of the dangers around, around you as well. And, and mm-hmm. you use that to, to 
correct that en- energy in a positive way. So interesting. So that means that you are using your fear as an advantage, and I understand. You know, you say that that some people, when they get into these tough situations, they freeze, and I think for me, that's always been a part of the process. Is I like pushing myself um, physically, mentally, uh, emotionally to see how I respond to these really difficult situations. And mm. I think until you really push yourself, you don't know yourself. You don't truly know yourself. And I think that's one of the been the, the takeaways from 20 years in the mountains for me pushing my body is, you know, I've really got to know myself well and I've got to know my clients well. And you know, seeing people in these really stressful situations, you see who people truly are. Mm. And sometimes you're surprised uh, for for better and for worse, but you see uh, sort of true humanity in these mm. situations. Like I mentioned, the avalanche on Everest and um, both avalanches on Everest and the avalanche on Montesalu, you know, they're they're very difficult situations to deal with and to lead a team uh, through those crises, it takes a lot from you. It takes a lot out of you. And, uh, for me, it's, it's taught me a lot about who I am and how I respond. Uh, and what reflections do have you, have you experienced? Like you said, you experience uh, how you are as a person. What's your reflections, uh, Mike, after, after those experiences? You know, I, I think you, I think you learn with every experience and, uh, you know, luckily I had the ability to be an assistant guide when I was first starting as a mountain guide. So I was able to build up that experience with uh, other leaders who sort of had control of the expeditions. And mm. so you learn, you grow as the years go on. And I think I've learned how to deal with these di- difficult situations. And I'd like to think that I'm fairly confident when when things go go wrong. But you know, it's like anything. It's if you're a if you're a Nordic skier, you you have to train your body and your mind to be competent. If you're a business leader, you need to put in the ten thousand or twenty thousand hours to build that experience base. And it's the same thing with mountain climbing. I've seen a lot of different situations now. You know, it's sort of a in an in innate response how to deal with adversity. So I think you grow and you learn and. I think I've improved over the years dealing with these tough situations and not internalizing them at the, at the time, but, you know, needing to deal with them later on hmm. for myself personally. One of my earlier guests was uh, Merete Falkenlien. And uh, she was yeah. uh, together with you on uh, Mandaslu in 2012 and it was the avalanche. And she said that uh, when I was when I told her I was going to mic on, I said, "Oh, my biggest hero!" <laughs> and uh, and uh, she also told in the podcast I had her that uh, she experienced the fear of uh, maybe dying in Montesquieu, and she also said that she was thinking about being alive for one hour at a time. And it, she said that you told her to keep calm and just think one one hour at a time. How? Did you how do you remember this episode in Manaslu and how did you keep calm and keep the other people calm, Mike? Yeah, that was that was a very difficult trip right from the start all the way till the till the end. I mean, it was a miserable trek in into base camp. It was hot, it was humid, it was raining every day. We were getting rained on at base camp, and then we got a about a meter of snow, and we waited. Luckily, we waited. Uh, 
a couple days longer to head up the mountain and the avalanche came down and unfortunately took out the camp above us. But we were lucky enough to be uh, just just out of the range of the avalanche. But uh, a very difficult situation, um, you know, as a leader of a team, you need to look out for your team first. Uh, after the avalanche came came down, I made sure they were okay. And then, uh, obviously, you know, you have an obligation to the people that are up above. Uh, so I was one of the first on the scene on that rescue. And and then it's you know after you after you see something like that, there needs to be a process of healing with the team and. Uh, so once we got back to, to base camp, I think we had lots of good good discussions about how people were feeling and you know whether or not we should continue the expedition mm. and it's just just a difficult situation. But you know, again, I think I pulled from the team knowing that I needed to be a leader for them and calm and cool and collected and uh, lead the rescue. And I hope that my having that response made allowed them to play off my response and, mm. and be calmer. And, you know, cause I, I know that that's certainly, you know, one of, one of my goals mm. for my team. I, I especially remember that you said that, uh, always thinking just, just for one hour at a time, you don't like for this hour and just for this hour. I know that this, uh, that's a mental strategy we use when you are in difficult situations. Uh, <clears throat> is this a strategy you have been, you have been preparing or have you, have you trained this strategy or, how does this come into mind, uh, Mike? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've seen over the years that clients have a tendency to focus on, you know, say we're climbing Mount Everest, they have a, a tendency to be focused on summit day and these grandiose goals, whereas you'll be a lot more successful on summit day if you focus on what you're doing that moment. So uh, throughout the expedition, I always tell my clients to really focus on each individual day and that will set you up to be as successful as you can be on summit day. You know, if, if, if you're fo you're, if you're always focused on the summit, you'll get distracted and you won't do what you need to do to put yourself in a position to be successful. So mm. we always say it's eating an elephant one bite at a time. <laughs> so that's a perfect metaphor it, for it. Well, <laughs> can, I, makes can I ask you a personal question? Sure. Uh, how do you deal with so many deaths? at the same time and are still keeping calm and as the authority of other people as a, as a mental trainer i train people to handle situations so i know that we have some internal dialogue and this in, internal dialogue is is what keep us focused either we're keeping us focused on on some on the problem or we're keeping us fo focused on the possibility yeah that's yeah. That, that's the main strokes of course and I'm curious about your internal dialogue because I think that is the key factor for your focus. And then I can understand how you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of... In those situations. In then let's take the avalanche on, uh, on, uh, on Mount Everest and you have uh, 22 people dying. What is your internal yeah. dialogue at that moment? You know, I, I think for me, I feel like I need to be in the moment and I need to... I need to separate my emotional self from what I, what I need to accomplish in the moment. And I know at that, at that moment, I need to help as much as I can. Mm. And so I'm able to s separate 
uh, emotionally from doing what I need to do. And then uh, maybe I come back to that later on and I need to process the event more uh, down the line. But at the moment, you're, you're, you're just looking at, at what you need to do at that time hmm. um, and helping as many people medically as you can, getting people out of harm's way, uh, repatriating bodies. You need to stay focused on, mm. on what you can do at that moment to ameliorate the situation. Uh, and I think that's one thing I've learned over the years. You know, I've, I've seen, um, over 50 people die in the mountains. And when you've seen that much death over the years, you're able to separate yourself to a certain extent in the moment mm. from, what's going on and, uh, you know, try and, I don't know, I guess just do what you need to do to survive that situation and then move on down the road. I understand. So in some way you're dissociating yourself from the situation. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I just read, a, in my opinion, a very good book from a guy I made, the uh, Travis Macy. Have you heard of him? He's a ultra runner from the U S I haven't, no. And he said something in the book. Uh, he said that when he's, uh, because he has done a lot of ultra marathons, and he said that when I'm, I'm in critical situations and when I would just want to give up, he said that this is a great time for mental training. So his internal dialogue, when, when it was very hard for him, he just told himself, this is a great opportunity for mental training. And that is a, that, that's a internal dialogue he has become aware of. So the reason I'm asked you this question, Mike, is that if I understand yeah. you correctly, you are in some way dissociating yourself from those difficult situations. And it's, it looks like from what I can hear is that you have done it so many times that it is automatic for you. You're, you're not in some way not, uh, not aware of the internal dialogue in the situations that is hard. Is that correct? Do I understand, yeah. you understand it correctly? I think that's right. I think you get trained and conditioned over the years to dealing with these situations. Um, so you also cycled unsupported across the United States. I did, yeah. What in the with my sister? Back. What in the heck happened? <laughs> Why did you? <laughs> how? What? What led you into <laughs> cycling across the U.S., Mike? <laughs> it's an interesting story. You know, it's. it's I, I think it's one of the great American adventures. A lot of people do it. Actually, it's not it's not that special, but I think I think the way we did it was special. You know, for me and my sister, as young adults, to take on such a huge trip it was the first time I've ever done anything like that. It was totally life changing for me. I'd never been uh, to the West Coast of the United States, and um, I actually, as the story goes, I got accepted to uh, university in Alaska and my parents didn't want me to go to school up there. So I said, well, screw it. I'm going to, I'm going to bike up there. If you're, if you're not, there, you know, you're not going to help me buy a plane ticket. I'm just going to bike there. And it was kind of my stubbornness that uh, precipitated this bike trip. And then I kind of got my parents on board. I mentioned it to my sister. She wanted to do it. And having never been out West before, I wanted to see everything. So actually we, uh, you can ride across the, the country in, you know, three, 3000 miles. I don't know what's that, uh, 5,000 kilometers, but 
we wanted to see everything. So we went all over the place. We, we ended up riding 4,700 miles, which is about 8,000 8, kilometers. And it was just such this incredible growth trip for us as siblings, but also just seeing the world being totally uh, dependent on ourselves. And, you know, we were just sleeping in the woods and, you know, behind schools. And it was, it was really cool. It was, wow. it was super empowering for me and my sister and just a great experience. But you did this before you started the mountain climbing. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. And, and I think it was this experience that made me realize I can set these lofty goals and attain them. And I really enjoyed putting the time into it. Like that trip was two and a half months, similar to the length of a Everest expedition. Um, so I, I love that sense of accomplishment, dedicating yourself to, uh, to some huge goal for several months at a time. So I'm sure that was a catalyst. So if I understand it correctly, Mike, you're, you're, um, you're a modern day explorer. Um, I don't know if I'd, I'd say that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the expeditions I'm doing have been done before. So it's not like I'm doing a lot of new things, but, um, for me, I just love the challenge of always pushing my body. So yeah, it's certainly exploring. I think a lot of what I'm exploring, uh, on these expeditions are, you know, getting to, getting to know my clients, learning from from them learning myself, how I react in different situations. So it's not like I'm doing groundbreaking mountain climbing, but for me, it's certainly a, a growth process. For what I can read from your site, Mike, because this is the first time you're talking. <laughs> so I haven't, I haven't asked you yeah. these questions before, so I haven't fact-checked your site. You have led over 100 major high-altitude expeditions worldwide. Yeah. That's correct? That's some experience, and that's a lot of exploring. <laughs> it, it <is. laughs> and it's also a lot of it. I'm in the mouth. And also a lot of learning. And you said that when you're doing these expeditions and, and everything you're doing, you're learning something. So are that some of a driving factor uh, for yourself to do all, all of this stuff? Is that is it a learner? Absol absolutely. Um, for me, one of, the, one of the things that keeps me coming back and It keeps these expeditions interesting for me is actually learning from my clients. We, the people I see on these expeditions, usually they're, they're super successful people in the, in their own right. And they have, they come from all walks of life and they have incredible stories. And so for me to kind of learn from them, learn their experiences has been amazing for me. And then for me to then turn around and be able to help them attain goals outside of the, their da daily lives and uh, facilitate the mountains inspiring them. That's, I think, my greatest joy, mountain climbing. Certainly having done these trips over and over again, you know, I've, I've done 30 expeditions to Aconcagua. It's kind of the same thing every time in a sense, but when you have new clients, um, it's always new, uh, new situations. And, and certainly, you know, the weather is different and And you learn from different situations. You know, if a storm rolls in on Summit Day on Aconcagua, uh, you get better at uh, dealing with stressful situations like that. But for me, the great joy has been dealing with clients and inspiring them because the, the mountains are such a powerful thing. They're such a powerful medium 
and to allow people to experience that, it changes their lives. Mm. They, they're different people by the time they get home. And that's been part of the joy for me. You know, it's, it's completely changed my life and it's been a, an education about the world and about people and about cultures. So to share that with others is huge. So it's some way of transforming people then. So, so a, a lot of your traits are your good people skills. Yeah. You know, I think, I think, uh, I think people skills are learned and you know, the psychology of, of mountain climbing is certainly a learned skill, but I, I love working with the people I work with, the, the guides, the Sherpa, uh, the locals from Argentina on our trips we, we do down there and certainly the clients. So yeah, that's one of the great joys. I'd say I'm a, a people person. I love that social aspect of climbing. Are there any common traits among the people that succeed reaching the top of Everest? Yep. There, there are absolutely uh, some common traits. I think, I think the, the most obvious one is the fact that people that are successful on Everest are doers. They're uh, people that commit to a goal and they won't let anything stand between them and achieving that goal. So they're very persistent, diligent. Uh, they do their research. Um, usually they're very successful in other, other uh, aspects of their life. So Uh, mainly they're just uh, doers, people that set their mind to something and uh, can achieve, can put in the time and effort to achieve those goals. Because uh, Marietta told me something that really inspired me uh, in our conversation, because I, I think she's trying to uh, reach Mount Everest now this summer or fall. And uh, <clears throat> like she said, that reaching Mount Everest is, uh, is a lot of training and it's costly. And she didn't have this much money, so Like she told me is that she went to bed at eight, I think. I think it was eight. And she stood up again at two at night. And she stood up again at two at night. And then then she went with the paper. And she was finished with the paper. Then she uh, started cleaning because she's running a, a hostel. Then she started cleaning and doing all the other work. And when she finished doing the breakfast and cleaning, then paperwork and then training for three to four hours. And she's doing this for... I think it's seven or eight months now. And I understand when I listen to a person with this commitment, she's most likely going to succeed with it. Absolutely, yeah. I think, uh, you know, I've learned over the years, there are no shortcuts. Anyone that tries to take shortcuts to the summit of a peak like Everest or even some of the smaller peaks, they end up failing in the long run. So to see that type of commitment, to see... Moretta, um, you know, be that dedicated to the goal, uh, she'll most likely be successful. Mm. I also uh, know another acquaintance, the, the, the person that uh, set, put us together, James Bruman. Uh, he's trying Mount Everest now in Mars, if, if I remember correctly. And he said he is that. Yeah, and he said he's going to try without uh, supply of oxygen. Yep, that's his plan. <laughs> and uh, now I'm curious is it normal going up to Mount Everest without a supply of oxygen uh, it's certainly not normal uh, uh, there are a select few people that have the ethics that they want to climb Everest on their own terms without oxygen it's a lot more dangerous uh, there's less 
uh, margin for error. And, you know, it's interesting. I actually talked to James yesterday for quite a while. He wanted to, since, since I've been up there so many times and we're friends, he wanted to pick, pick my brain about what he's gotten himself into. And, you know, James is one of those people. He's super goal oriented. He's willing, willing to commit the time, the couple months to run across Australia or the six months or whatever it took him to, to bike from uh, Alaska. Two, to two, two years. Two years. Oh, really? Two years, yeah. yeah. Uh, I yeah. Mean, it's incredible. He's a very goal-oriented person, and uh, I've been watching him the, the last couple of days since he uh, he decided that this was going to be his goal. You know, not too long ago, he's decided that he's going to throw everything he can towards it, and he's committed to train and. I'm sure he'll be ready and prepared, but it's, it's a very dangerous thing climbing Everest without oxygen. And I wanted to stress that to him. And James is someone that'll do his research and he knows the risks. He accepts the risks and he puts the safeguards in place in case things go wrong. So it's a very like prescribed method of attaining his goal. And I think, you know, a lot of the traits that James has, those are the traits that make people successful on a peak like Mount Everest. Have you been to Mount Everest uh, without oxygen, uh, Mike? I haven't. Every time I've been on Everest, I've been guiding clients. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I feel it's pretty yeah, I, un I understand. <laughs> the guide, needs, um, the guide so, needs to be there. <laughs> I mean, we're there at the end of the day, we're there for our clients. So yeah, of course we need to be as, uh, as sound of mind and body as we can be. So I always use oxygen. There was a point, a uh, point in time, you know, five, six years ago that I would have liked to have tried without oxygen, but that's when my, uh, that's when my risk tolerance was higher. I think as I get older, my mm -hmm. risk tolerance has dropped a little bit and, I don't really have a desire to climb Everest without oxygen, whether I could or not. Um, it's kind of beside the point at this point. Mm. I'm not willing to take that risk. I have other priorities in life at this point. So, uh, Just to change the lane a little bit. I read some somewhere that uh, you eat uh, cocoa plants when you reach and uh, go to higher mountains. Is that correct? Do you want to eat? You want to eat? Yeah. Yeah. I do that. Uh, personally, I don't. Um, but a lot of South America, it's very popular in South America. Um, That's cocaine plants for people it. listening. <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah, it speeds up the metabolism, and it's supposed to it's supposed to help with the acclimatization process. I haven't really tried it that much, but there are lots of things out there like using diamox that helps or. I think ginkgo biloba is supposed to help as well. Oh, Viagra, I use Diamox. Yeah, Viagra as well. They're they're using nowadays in sort of low doses, and that's supposed to help as well. They're testing that I think every year uh, on Everest climbers. For me personally, um, I found that Diamox acetazolamide helps quite a bit just to even out your breathing rate when you're sleeping, you get this thing called chain stokes breathing where you sort of uh, re uh, revert to sea level breathing 
when you sleep and so you actually wake up hypoxic and you have to gasp to catch your breath again so i find that taking diamox kind of evens that out but yeah there are several different drugs that people take to uh help hmm. with altitude are there any special breeding techniques uh, used when you're going to everest absolutely we've got several efficiency techniques uh climbing at high altitude uh we we use a technique called pressure breathing okay, which is, is basically pressure breathing is basically just trying to uh force as consciously force as much oxygen into the lungs as you can uh and it's interesting if you put the pulse oximeter on your finger and you actively breathe it'll raise your oxygen saturation by, you know, five to 10 points. So it's very effective. But I think if you don't do that on Everest on summit day, it's going to be very difficult to summit. So little techniques like that definitely help. Some people say that if you create a back pressure, uh, that's why it's called pressure breathing. If you create a back pressure, it keeps the VLI open longer and assimilates more oxygen into your uh into your lungs your body um but basically the purpose of pressure breathing is to just try and focus on your breathing and you know uh get as much oxygen to your brain as you can and i presume a lot of this breathing technique is keeping calm as much as possible yep i know i know um, i know that james is looking into the wim hof method and from what I understand, that is uh, that is pressure breathing. That is, that is filling up your blood with oxygen. Yep. Have Have you tried this uh, that breathing technique? Yeah, I I use pressure breathing on every high altitude expedition I'm on. So that uh, that is I a use... common breathing technique. I understand. Yep, absolutely, and it, and it's just like using oxygen in, in a sense. It's uh, it increases your oxygen saturation and just makes you stronger and more rested. And as a guide, that's very important. I need to be as rested and have a reserve, uh, in case, you know, there's a rescue or something like that. So I use pressure breathing on every high altitude expedition I go on. Very interesting because I know that you're an active marathoner, ultramanter and skier. Um, Mike, do you use this same technique in the restitution or in your training or? under the competition absolutely absolutely it's it's pretty effective i think you know both staying calm and using this pressure breathing it improves performance quite a bit so does that mean that you're using a lot of letter the restitute uh in between training uh, the pressure uh, breathing i'm using oh yeah yeah absolutely so when you're resting if for example if you're uh, if you're training for ultra marathon you do use this uh, breathing method in your restitution periods. Uh, by restitution, you mean? I mean, uh, in the resting in between uh, training or competition. No, mainly just when I'm uh, when I'm in the competition. Interesting. Interesting. Yep. So, you, so, does that mean that when I when I talk about restitution, I mean when you're not training, when you are relaxing at home and eating dinner with your girlfriend? Yeah. Do you have, yeah. Do you have any practices you use with your breath, or is that just in the competition or when you're going to the mountains? Personally, I I don't. I I use the pressure breathing when I'm in the mountains, but when I'm 
at home at sea level. Um, I don't have any special techniques that I use. I, you know, I, I know a lot of people to stay calm on these high altitude expeditions. They'll meditate on the trip, and um, I've I've never tried that, but it seems to help and work for a lot of people. So uh, it could be could be a very good technique yeah. for at home. So you're not using meditation, Mike? No, no, I'm not. Interesting, because you look like a very, very, very calm guy. <laughs> and meditation is is a very good tool for keeping calm. I was pretty sure you used that, that technique. Can you throw the, are the nationalities that stand out in particular in a positive direction from your expeditions? Say Norwegians. <laughs> well, it's going to sound like I'm playing to uh, your audience a bit, but I have to say Norwegians as a whole stand out. And, and, you know, I think that's mainly because, uh, there's such a strong history with that polar exploration and the connection with nature in Norway. There are so many, so many active people, uh, so many people out there, Nordic skiing and, uh, Alpine skiing and, and just getting out in nature. I think that's part of your culture and the allure of this polar exploration from back in the days of people like Amundsen. And, you know, when you look at like, you know, Vegard Olvang doing, uh, I, I probably butchered his name in Norwegian, but, you know, he'd go off and do these uh, amazing expeditions with Vladimir Smirnov. And I think, I think that's just part of the Norwegian culture. And I think when you're in, in extreme places like Mount Everest and, uh, South Pole, North Pole, you're kind of in your element because that's that's uh, the environment of Norway. Whereas, you know, someone from uh, uh, Trinidad or Kenya is, you know, not going to be as attuned to those extreme polar, cold, snowy environments. So, mm. um, yeah, I think I think uh, Norwegians, uh, the Brits as well, you know, they have that history of exploration polar exploration and the early expeditions to Mount Everest and uh, surveying the Himalayas. And I think that's part of the culture. You know, they, they put these guys like Serena Fines and uh, Mallory and Hillary on a pedestal and they're part of the folklore as with in Norway and to the, in the United States to a certain extent as well. And I think, I think that's what drives people to, be successful on, on these expeditions. So certainly the Norwegians, the Brits, uh, to a certain extent, the Americans stand out in these environments. One question that popped in my mind when you were talking now, uh, Mike, is that I understand that people that is going to reach Mount Everest, they are, they are focused driven people. They are in some way pretty stubborn. When you're focused driven, you're stubborn. <laughs> Can this lead to any challenges as you as a team leader when you're having all these people so focused driven and so stubborn? Can this lead to any troubles or difficulties? Absolutely. I get a lot of type A clients, goal-driven people, people that, as I mentioned before, you know, they don't let anything come between them and their goals. And I think I need to start off at the beginning of every expedition uh, setting myself as, as a leader and I need to build that respect. So, you know, part of that is leading by example and, um, you know, having the buy-in from the team on these, on decisions I make being democratic to a certain extent, you know, kind of fostering this 
this environment of, you know, positivity and, you know, reaching our goals. And so I think, you know, it can be a challenge at times, but for the most part, if you set yourself up as a leader and people respect you as a leader, then they're going to respect your decisions, even if they're a hard decision to make, you know, like I'm honestly, we canceled the expedition, but you know, I think people respected that decision. And if you're clear about your thought process and why you're making decisions, I think uh, most of these people have common sense and they don't want to do anything rash, even though they want to attain their goals. So uh, it can be difficult at times, but um, in in the end, uh, you know, you're sort of signing off on, on my leadership when you come on. Uh, we rarely hear about the women climbing, uh, Everest and other mountains, as I can hear it, at least. And uh, like uh, Merete said, that in uh, she went with you in 2012, the she was the only girl on, on the team. Yeah. And she's, are there fewer girls? And why are there fewer girls? And are they more or less prepared than the guys? Uh, yeah, there, there are still a lot fewer women than there are men on these expeditions. I'd say nowadays it's probably... 30 to 50% women on the expeditions, whereas a decade ago it was probably 10% women. Uh, but it seems like women in general are as prepared, if not more prepared than men. And, you know, I think that that partly comes from the fact that there are less women. So they feel, they feel like if they're going to make this commitment, it's a very conscious decision and they don't want to let the team down. So they want to prove themselves in this sort of, you know, minority, numerically minority role. So it seems like in general, uh, they're as prepared, if not more prepared. And they certainly seem to have a pretty high uh, pain threshold. So I think that helps as well. I, I'm not going to say this out loud, do they? <laughs> so I Maybe mountain climbing attracts a special type of uh, of woman, but yeah, they certainly seem to be able to suffer in the mountains. We can't say oh. they can't say this out loud, uh, Mike. But okay, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool to hear. <clears throat> but as as a guide, Mike, what is the very best and worst? To be a guide on your level, because remember, you have over one hundred major high altitude expeditions. Yeah, yeah. I sort of, I've sort of mentioned this before, but for me, uh, absolutely the most, the best part of these expeditions for me is working with the clients, helping them, uh, inspiring them to attain their goals, helping them attain their goals, learning from them. So for me, that's what really changes on these expeditions and. That's been the best thing for me. And also working with the local cultures, as I mentioned, uh, you know, work, I, I've spent four or five years working with the Sherpa in the Himalayas and they've become like family to me. I mean, literally, I spent more time with some of my Sherpa buddies than I have with my family over the last 10, 15 years. So they become like family and, and I, I love I love learning from them. I love experiencing their culture. Um, so that's been the best thing for me. And I think, I think the hardest thing for me is often knowing that, uh, that there's a lot of pressure on me as a guy. There's, there's a lot of stress 
certainly I have people's lives uh, literally in my hands. And these are people that I care about. A lot of times, especially nowadays, I have return clients that I've been climbing with for 10, 15, 20 years. And they're people I care about. And I certainly... Uh, I certainly want to keep them safe. And so that's, that's a stress for me. And so it's kind of a negative in a positive sense. You know, I, it's, uh, it's certainly stressful knowing that I have people's lives in my hands and it's on me to, to keep them safe. But, uh, it's a great thing that I've been able to build these relationships with my clients over the years and call a lot of my clients friends, not just clients. When you told about the Sherpas, I'm like, my curious meter just what? Because yeah. when, when I'm <laughs> when I have seen documentaries or something about Mount Everest, uh, in my opinion, it's always looked like the Sherpas have been some kind of slaves. That that's, that's yeah. probably an extreme misconception on my part, but yeah. but but is it? This is a misconception. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I think to a large extent it's a misconception. I think it's a easy narrative to sell to put out there and i think i think you know in some way so you know people want to they almost want to buy into this exploitation and and there is some exploitation going on there but generally what i've seen over the years is uh if sherpa are being exploited it's often from the local companies that don't charge as much so they can't pay the sherpa as much money or from the nepali government who is as we all know, the government charges a lot of money for uh, an Everest permit. So the government, Do they? I didn't, take, know that. didn't know that. Yeah, they take. Uh, I think they charge around ten grand to thirteen grand per person for a permit. And obviously, the Sherpa don't see much of this. That all goes to the government. You know, who knows where where it goes? Um, but the Sherpa certainly don't see much of this. So basically, after the the avalanche in 2014 on Everest, that's one of the things that we were all pushing for is for the Sherpa to be paid well, to be looked at after in terms of, you know, their uh, insurance, insurance for the Sherpa from the government. And it's often the Western companies, the company I work for and, and others that uh, we pay the, the Sherpa really well. I mean, you know, Certainly, the discrepancy between Western guides and, and Sherpa is there. They don't make as much as Western guides, but uh, living costs are much less oh, in Nepal. And make, they make a fortune for living in Nepal. So they're, they're the rock stars. They get paid as much as our basketball stars or our you know, NFL football stars in the United States. So these guys are the rock stars. Good to hear. And I I think one point I like to make and really what it comes down to is I make as a guide, I make enough, um, to, to go over there and risk my life on these mountains. For me, it's worth the money I make to go be a guide on Mount Everest. And, and the same is true for the Sherpa. Like they're not forced into working on Everest. Obviously they're making enough that they want to go work on Everest. They can, they can make a lot of money to send their kids to school in Kathmandu or whatever, but they make enough uh, to <clears throat> take these risks on Everest, and I make enough to take these risks on Everest. So uh, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say they're exploited, 
And I think that in general, especially the Western companies, we're always working with them to facilitate education, you know, through the Kumbu Climbing School where we're trying to um, make sure they're safer in the mountains and um, really, you know, foster the guide mentality. Uh, we we want to see them be as, as successful as possible. We want to see our guides our Western guides be as successful as possible. So I think, uh, I think it's a pretty symbiotic relationship and we try and we try and work with them as much as we can. So uh, what makes the Sherpa so mentally special because they are mentally special. So what makes them so special? I think, well, I mean, certainly physiologically the Sherpa coming from the Tibetan plateau, of course, adapting genetics, the Tibetan plateau. Yeah, genetics. Um, they're able to do things at altitude that we're uh, that we're not able to do. But I think their culture as well. It's ingrained in them to have a, a hard work ethic and to be giving and caring. And I think that's really why we've fallen in love with Sherpa. You know, Sherpa has become a house a household word, and it's because um, because of this you know sort of idyllic culture that we put them on a pedestal because they're known for being gracious and hardworking and superhuman at altitude. So there are a lot of things that make them uh, special, you know, that they're very family oriented. Um, so they're, I think culturally it's, it's part of it and their genetics is another big part of it. You have also done the seven summits, uh, Mike. I have, uh, six times now. Wow. And for people who do not understand or do not do not know what the seven summits are and why this crazy person has done it six times, can you explain, Mike? Can you tell what the seven summits are? <laughs> so the seven summits are uh, the highest peak on each continent. Uh, it's often a lifetime goal for people to climb the tallest peak on each continent. Um, and you know, often it takes people 10 to 20 years to complete them all if they're able to do so. So it's kind of this big lifetime goal. Uh, and, uh, you know, for me, I've, the only reason I've done it six times is because I do a lot of them for work. So I'm constantly going to these, uh, peaks like Everest and Aconcagua and, and Denali in Alaska. So that's the only reason I've been able to do it, uh, do them all six times but um now there's something called the, the seven plus two where you do the seven summits the tallest peak on each continent and then ski to the south and north pole and that's been a big goal as well that people have been chasing and it's a very select few people that have accomplished that so uh, you know it's just goal-oriented people looking to push themselves and seven summits is a huge goal You see that I couldn't find any questions. I, I was speechless, and I'm never speechless <laughs> because for me this is uh, some kind of insanity. I mean, I say insanity in a, in a positive way, of course. But I'm I'm so curious to what what is motivating you. How, what is what when you do when I've done it one time i can understand that i understand the first time i understand but we do have done the seven summits six times and i have almost ten times on everest 
and you have a skid to the south pole. You're always pushing your limits all the time. And for a normal person, I can I categorize my, categorize myself as a normal person. For me, this is this is insanity. So, how do you push these limits? Because for a normal person, normal person, this is this is so extremely far out. So for me listening to you, I'm just in awe. I'm in awe because I'm listening to all these extreme expeditions and and I can see these pictures in my head. I can and I I can it's so when I talk to you, I can feel this feeling of fear and and this feeling of uh, accomplishment when when you're reaching each um, in each uh, base camp. But I'm so for me uh, pushing a limit here is if I'd said I've going to train for one year to go to the Himalayas. That is extremely large goal. And I understand that you have built this uh, limit for each for each year and, and each um, each uh, expedition. But you still need to find this motivation to push yourself and push your limits even if it's your job. And what is what is this factor as that make you push this limit all the time? I think I think for myself, it's always been part of my personality. Uh, you know, I was uh, I was a Nordic ski racer growing up, and uh, I love pushing pushing my body through endurance sports when I was a kid, cycling, um, skiing, and and running. And I think that just became part of who I am. And I'm most happy when I'm pushing myself. So. Uh, for me, it doesn't necessarily seem like work. Obviously, it's it's hard work, but it doesn't seem like work to me. That's when I'm most happiest. That's what I enjoy doing the most. So for me, you know, we always say that um, it's nice when your avocation and your vocation is is the same thing. And and in my case, that's cer- that's certainly true. You know, I I'm lucky that my job is my passion. So I don't necessarily. Uh, draw a distinction between the two so i think i'm just kind of i've always been personally motivated to push myself like that i have a big belief that uh, mike is that every person almost every person that has been a guest to have uh, the pole explorer berger auslan as uh, one of my guests and uh, i presume you know that name since he's done the the north pole on skis and done it alone Absolutely, certainly a, a hero of mine. Uh, and another uh, guest that is coming this year is Alin Kagge. I don't, I don't know that name. No, he's uh, been to Everest and uh, he's also uh, gone to North Pole and uh, went under the sewer in under New York as some of his uh, accomplishments. And I believe that <laughs> I believe that uh, all this person, if, if they are successful authors stone crushers whatever it is i believe that their strategies can be adopted for the normal persons i said the normal persons the normal persons have haven't done these extreme things but i think the mental strategies are the same i believe that yeah. if you're dealing with stress and fear before you're going into a meeting i believe that they can use the same technique as you are using at the top of Mount Everest. Because a mental strategy is the same. It's just it's, it's just external circumstances that is the difference. Yeah, I agree. So from so for your from your experience, then, Mike, 
What technique do you use to overcome fear? I heard you said earlier that you're staying calm. But do you remember the first time, the first time in your expedition, you were really, really, really afraid and you were, you were sure you're going to die and you had to handle this fear? Yeah. So um, what what techniques I used to... Yeah. If, if you first, do you remember the first time you really felt fear? You were sure you were going to die. Remember this? Do you remember that episode? I I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Can you tell? I, can you can you tell the story? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Probably. Well, there are, there are a couple of different uh, situations. I I was climbing a steeper route on the north side of uh, of Mount Rainier just when I was getting into a, my guiding career. And uh, there was a big rock fall, and I actually was able to dodge a rock, but it hit me in the side and um, knocked the wind out of me, and I and I passed out for a moment. But I luckily I had my ice tools in, so I didn't fall, and I came to. Um, but you know, it's interesting. That was maybe 2001. That was early in my career, and I remember having a lot of doubt after that situation. I realized my mortality and I very seriously, you know, questioned what I was doing and thought about getting out of the sport altogether. And looking back on it, I'm glad I didn't do that. I'm glad I, I stuck with climbing and guiding because it's been such an amazing transformative experience for me. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I think, I think that's what I took away from it is the fact that it, it, you realize your mortality when you go through situations like that. And mm. it's pretty scary confronting. One thing I, I see from people like you and Berg Avslund <clears throat> is that you have, you have both done some extreme things like uh, Berg told in his uh, episode is that he woke up and it was a polar bear outside his tent. <clears throat> And he has had a lot of these situations. But and when I asked him about his mental techniques, he couldn't he could he he had he had some problems pinpointing the technique because it's something you are just doing. It's just it's just automatically you don't think about it. Like me for example. If there are a situation that I have to accomplish or overcome I think about what strategy I'm using and how is my eternal dialogue. So for me, it isn't automatic in the same way as it's for you. So when I'm asking you uh, what strategy do you use to overcome fear, it looks like it's you, it's not an um, the word for it. It's not an it's not a conscious strategy. It's just something that you that you're doing. It's naturally. I, I agree. Yeah, for for me, um, you know, I think maybe that's that's why it's difficult for me to answer your question as to what my internal dialogue is, because I don't know if it's necessarily a conscious thing, a conscious process that I go through, and maybe it's just that I've been through that process so many times that it's I'm just conditioned to respond the way I no always doubt. respond and somehow uh, you know push through it. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so yeah, no I, doubt. Absolutely right. It's it's not necessarily a conscious dialogue or or decision that I make. But to take this back into the normal people's lives, are there any strategies or experiences that uh, you have for all your 
uh, from all your um, expeditions that you can recommend to people in their normal life if they are if there something they want to accomplish more or push their limits or um i think you know i think um i think knowing yourself is very important um and i and i think i think one of the things i've found over the years is what makes people successful in the mountains or uh, successful in business or su- successful in other cultures uh, are are usually the same traits and i think focusing on on those traits and you know trying to stay true to those traits especially if if you truly know yourself and you and you hold those values i think you're going to be successful and i i found that the the traits of good leaders the world over are you know, diligence, uh, perseverance, leading by example, you know, things like this are, are what are going to make you successful no matter what you're doing. And I think, um, I think even if you don't necessarily have those traits innately, I think you can teach yourself to have those traits. You know, a lot of times you hear that this, um, it kind of the, the new term nowadays is grit, you know, uh, to, to just be like, to have that persistence and, uh, stay true to your goals and what you're trying to accomplish and not let anything get in your way. I think, uh, I think that's a, that's a learned skill as well. And you have to focus on that. You know, I, there's a great quote that basically says, uh, greatness is not an act, but a habit. And I uh, believe that to be true. I think you need to focus on, um, on working towards these good traits every day. And, Mm. you know, like, especially in today's world where people want to get famous for doing nothing on social media or, you know, be a reality star or whatever. I, I think, I think if you're going to be successful, you need to focus on having good traits and good habits and work towards that every day. And you'll be in, you'll be successful in anything you do. I can sign on what you're saying, Mike. And, I'm doing this podcast now. I started this podcast in June of uh, last year, and to be honest, uh, to be honest, the first I think the first episode I had uh, had hundred listeners, and I was so uh, I, I felt this accomplishment of these hundred listeners because when I started with it, I, to be honest, I was afraid of the microphone. Uh, since the, since yeah. uh, since school days, as I hated talking out loud, so then I started to, to, to talk in this microphone. I was, I was scared, and I, I, remember, I forgot what I was going to say. So the first hundred, I was this was I was so proud, and yeah. at the same time, I set this goal of in one year, I'm going to have the most successful podcast in Norway, and uh, now a uh, half a year later without any uh, um, any uh, organizational uh, uh, sponsors. This is now on the top 10 most uh, popular podcasts in Norway. Oh, wow. Uh, and this uh, happened now in uh, December and January. So we are now on the top lists, the top 10 lists. And the only uh, other podcast on this list is just huge organizations like uh, NRK, is our... Uh, there was uh, state uh, newspapers and video uh, television, and uh, the Norway's biggest newspaper is Vega. 
So there are just huge organizations in front of me on, on the list. And it's this grit you're talking about because what is the same as climbing is that you have to do something every day. It's not, it's not that I'm just now recording you. It's that you're recording, you're editing, you're writing, yeah. you're, you're, uh, you're doing all this stuff behind the scenes that nobody, is, nobody sees. And I presume it's the same as climbing. You're doing all this work and people are thinking, oh, this was an overnight success. Oh, this was an overnight uh, success was him, was, uh, on his part, that being this uh, successful uh, uh, leader, an expedition leader. So yeah. I think it's all about the grit. And I think it's all about doing the work every day, even if you don't see the results there and then. Because this summer, I've done this now for half a year, and it's at least 30 hours each week after my normal job. So I didn't see the results for half a year later. And I think it's the same in climbing. You don't see the results for after a period of time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I always say that half the expedition is before you walk out the door and get on that plane, uh, doing the prep work, uh, the organization to have a successful expedition is super important. So I just have to get the, the power to my computer, but I just want to ask you a question before I'm running for for the for the for the power. Is that what do you do to push yourself in this grit period, if I can call it that? What do you do yeah. to push yourself? Um, for me personally, I just try and I try and make a conscious effort to. Uh, stay true to my ideals and values every day. I think if you do that, you know, part of that is, is work ethic, you know, part of that is, um, you know, doing that work before. I think if, I think if you do that, so. So, <clears throat> this is pushing yourself then, uh, Mike. That's what you're doing yep. to push yourself. Yep. <clears throat> yeah. Just around it, around this up. What is your goal for the next five years? Um, you know, I think I think my goals are changing. I, I've a I've accomplished a lot of what I wanted to accomplish with mountain climbing, and I'm hoping to turn my attention to some other goals to keep pro progressing for myself. You know, I, I love mountain climbing. I love meeting new clients. Uh, but for me, I don't feel like I'm completely fulfilled by that. I want to keep progressing as a person. And I think for me, that might be getting more into the, the business side of, of climbing, challenging myself that way. Interesting. Uh, also, uh, you know, having a, having a family, getting married and having a family. So I think, as you get older, your priorities change, and uh, and that is you know, hard work, Mike. That is hard work. <laughs> I'm sure it's hard work climbing uh, Mount Everest. So. Uh, writing goals as well. You know, I've got I've got some writing goals um, that I want to really finish this year, and then continue with that in the future. So I think turning my attention from climbing towards uh, some other some other things uh, is my main focus. And I think I think uh, something that a lot of people uh, don't think about is that 
when you're going to succeed in something, you have to have a base. You have to have these fun- fundamentals. So a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to be famous. And yes, in some very, 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 very few equations that happens. But for most part, they have a lot of fundamentals. So for you, that has <clears throat> over 100 expeditions, you went to Everest almost 10 times. And yeah. you have also, uh, back in 2008, you have Discovery Channel uh, series. Is that correct? Do you remember yep. correctly? Yeah? Yeah. So you have all these fundamentals. So when you're now starting to write a book, you have a lot of fundamentals, this this groundwork. And yeah. when you're also starting the business so part, you have you have so much experience in doing the stuff behind the scenes. So it's it's a yeah. pretty it's a pretty easy way for you to do all the other stuff. Yeah. I mean, I say easy. In, uh, it's of course not yeah. easy, but you have the yeah. experience. Yeah, there there are new challenges, and I I always told myself that I didn't want to take shortcuts. I wanted to put in the time to uh, become a professional at, at what whatever I was doing. I wanted to, to put in the time to build that experience. And, uh, you know, I think I've done that mountain climbing, uh, with over a hundred, uh, pretty successful, uh, international major international, uh, expeditions. So now that doesn't feel like quite as big of a challenge as other things. So I want to change my attention a little bit. I understand. Are there any places people can follow you on social media, uh, Mike? Uh, absolutely. I have uh, I have a Facebook page, Climbing the Seven Summits, uh, Instagram, Climbing the Seven Summits, and uh, you know certainly my website, uh, ClimbingTheSevenSummits.com, is a, a good resource for people that want to look at some of these peaks. You know, like like I say, uh, Norwegians are are, uh, it's sort of person, part of the personality to get out there and challenge themselves in the outdoors. So if people are looking at climbing some of these mountains, um, climbing the seven summits.com is a good resource to answer a lot of their questions. So if anyone's interested, feel free to check that out. Yeah. And I'm going to put the uh, links in the show notes as well. So I wish you the best of luck here, Mike, and I hope to speak to you again. Awesome. Sounds great. Thanks a lot for having me on, Frank.